This is Novel Marketing, the show for novelists who aren't necessarily fond of marketing, but still want to become best-selling authors. I'm Thomas Sumstadt, Jr. I'm James L. Rubart. And this is the show for novelists who want to become best-selling authors. Well, friends, we have done it. We have hit episode number 100. So that means it's time once again to take a few of the questions you've sent us and give you a few thoughts on those questions. But since this is our 100th episode, we also want to do some giveaways. So we're going to do that. And feel free to send us a question right now since this is live. Um, We would love to get your questions in the moment and see if we can answer those. Yeah, this is exciting. It's been a long road to 100 episodes. I think we started in 2014 or 2013, I think is when we first started talking about this. And uh, most podcasts don't make it to 100. In fact, most podcasts don't make it to 25. So I'm very thankful for all of you who tuned in and joined with us. We are as popular now as we've ever been. We've been growing. And we thank uh, those of you who have helped to spread the word and tell your friends and uh, other authors about the show. Uh, We really appreciate it. Deeply, deeply appreciate it. So um, let's kick off the 100th episode with a question from Evelyn Williamson. And she actually has three questions, Thomas, so we'll take them one at a time. But she says, I'm working on my first novel, and I want to know how much money I need once I publish to actually promote my book. Yeah, so it depends on uh, how much, uh, whether you're self-publishing or traditionally publishing. I'm going to assume that you're self-publishing for this question. And when it comes to promotion budget, it depends on how you're planning to promote your book. So uh, what you want, most authors don't really spend any money. (laughs) So it's not uncommon for a promotion budget to be $500 or less. So a lot of it depends on uh, what you spend your money on. Uh, If I did just one thing, I would have a launch party and invite as many people as possible. But again, that it depends if if that plays to your uh, area of expertise or your what you're comfortable with. Yeah, a lot of people will spend money in in traditional advertising, which has been my background for a long, long time. If you put a dollar in, you should get $2 out. So if you want to succeed, the more money you spend, the more you will succeed. However, most authors do not have an unlimited advertising budget. They usually don't have an advertising budget at all. And so there are a lot of things that will take you time, but not necessarily money. So I always encourage authors to start with that. Invest time in things you can do that aren't going to cost you a lot of money. We do have an episode on uh, what to do if you don't have any much of a budget. So we'd encourage you uh, to listen to that episode. Some things that I recommend uh, that are uh, to spend money on. I would buy a good $100 podcasting microphone <laughs> and a set of headphones. Uh, we have it again. We have a couple of episodes that say exactly which uh, microphone to to get. But uh, the my, uh, microphone that Jim's using right now is uh, I think you can get on Amazon right now for about eighty bucks, and so it's a good it's a good one to get. And uh, once you have a good microphone, you can start reaching out to podcasts to be a guest on those podcasts. And the key way is just say, hey, I listen to your podcast, and I think I'd be a good fit for your show and for your topic and for your listeners in this way. And if you've actually listened to the podcast, you can make a good pitch. When Jim and I get pitched a lot of times for people to be on our podcast, and very often, we it's very obvious that they have not heard a single episode. <laughs> in fact, we got a pitch of somebody who's like, I you know, have a real passion for entrepreneurs. I want to talk to entrepreneurs about my story of starting a business. And they're like, 
Have you ever heard the show? This is the novel marketing podcast, not the business marketing podcast. So that's an easy way to do it. And um, the nice thing about that is that once you buy that microphone, you can do an unlimited number of recordings. It's just up to your time. Uh, the other thing I would spend money on, again, let's assume you have a $500 budget. I would spend some money giving away books on Goodreads. That can be very cost effective. And I'd also experiment with Goodreads ads. You'd be surprised $100 on Goodreads might get you quite a bit of advertising um, space. And then the final thing I would say down the road, this doesn't work for a book launch, but a BookBub ad, it's $100, $200, $300 is always worth the money. I've never heard of someone who'd paid for BookBub and didn't make back their money uh, again many times. And a BookBub ad is not always easy to get. You have to go through some stringent testing, some stringent criteria to get that, but keep at it. If you don't get it the first time, keep applying, keep trying to get on there because at least as of right now, I would say BookBub is probably your best uh, bet in terms of the emails and newsletters that go out about free or discounted books. That's right. All right, what's our next question, Jim? So our next question is, Evelyn also would like to know what kind of things are acceptable to write off because writing is a business. So can she write off books on the craft of writing? Can she write off subscriptions to writing magazines? Could she write off that microphone that you're talking about, possibly her getting if she's going to do podcasts and that kind of thing? And I'm going to throw this question to you, Thomas, since you have a Tom who is your dad, who is actually a tax accountant. Yeah, so I should say I'm not a CPA. Uh, right, so don't take this and, and yeah. use this as gospel. We do have an episode, though, where we talk with an actual CPA uh, on this show. Uh, and we also link, um, there's a course that we did on Author Media that is detailed tax advice specifically for authors that is a one-hour training course I did with my dad, who's a CPA who works with lots of authors. But in general, if you're set up as a business, if the IRS considers you a business and not a hobby, which we talk about the different criteria, there's 19 that the IRS looks at to decide if you're a business or not. Uh, you know, expenditures on advertising and on, you know, podcasting equipment and books on how to read, all of that I would say is legitimate business expenses. But again, I'm not a CPA. Uh, you can listen to those episodes and talk to your CPA for the, don't sue me if it doesn't work out. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's right. But, but really take time to look into this because it's not just books and magazines and that sort of thing. It's, it's conferences. It's your flight to the conference. It's all those things that you might not necessarily think about. If you're part of a critique group and you're driving to that critique group, it's possible that you can write off mileage for your car. I do that when I go and I speak at a conference that I drive to. I get to write off 53.5 cents per mile that I drive to the conference. So there's lots of areas. Again, we are not accountants, but we have owned our own businesses for a long time. And there are a lot of places that you might not realize if you're pursuing this that you can write off. All right, our next question comes from Dave Smale, who has, sends in the most questions, I think, and some of the best questions. He says- We love Dave. Yeah. Uh, some literary agents ask for a market analysis with the query letter, but sellers don't release their numbers to the public. It seems like the agents would know much better than the authors, so, what, uh, so wouldn't that be their job? So there's several different ways that we can answer this. Jim, I'll let you start. Okay, so- one of the things that people want to see, whether it's the publishing industry, whether it's any industry, is initiative. So if you go out there and do your own research, that is going to say something to the agent or to the editor that you're trying to present to. In this case, I guess it would be an editor to see if you've done your research. So if you go out and look at the books that have sold well, you can do research to see what books have sold well over the course of time. 
you could also go crazy and actually call Barnes and Noble and various independent bookstores and ask them, this is the type of book I'm writing. Do you have anything similar or what has resonated with your buyers, your customers over the last couple of years? And you put that in a proposal, they're going to go, wow, this guy or this gal has really taken time to research this just beyond what he can find with a few clicks of the mouse. So again, anytime you can take the initiative to find out what has gone on with this book, you can blog, Google this book, and don't just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, go other places where the book's being talked about. If you can say this book is similar to mine and I've got all this ancillary research as well, that'll just make a great impression on the publisher. You can also go to junglescout.com. They have an estimator that will help you estimate based off of someone's Amazon sales rank, how many book sales they're getting. So you can use that as a stand-in. Uh, so you may not know what the whole market sales are, but you have that one piece of it. And that's junglescout.com. All right, let's go to our next question. This comes from Joshua Moore. And Joshua says, Jim Thomas... Thank you for the insight you give so freely. I've been listening to at least three episodes a day. I'm on 65 now, and I can't help but wondering, how did you two meet? Now, I think we talked about this already, didn't we, Thomas? No, we did, but we cut it from that episode because we had some uh, recording glitches. Uh, oh, we get to tell the story now then. Yeah, okay, so, great. so for those of you who are listening live, you actually get to hear the story of how Jim and I met, and it's actually a little bit weird. <laughs> so uh, I was walking in the Austin Bergstrom Airport, and uh, I saw this guy holding a uh, poster with his head on it. And I looked at the picture on the poster and I was like, hey, I've seen that picture before on social media. And I was like, are you James Rubart? <laughs> and he's like, I am. And then he looks at me and he's like, are you Thomas Umstead? And I was like, I am. <laughs> so we actually had known each other by reputation and we met on a total fluke. I was flying out. He was flying in. We weren't even going to the same event. No, no, not same. He was doing an event in my hometown and I was doing an event in California. And we met randomly in the airport. And um, yeah, then what happened? And then after that, we just said, oh my gosh, we got to connect. We know we have known each other of each other for a long time. We had a lot of mutual friends. It's like, uh, and we chatted. We might have chatted for two or three minutes there. So it was more than just a hello. And, and I think I walked away going, yeah, I like this guy. I want to get to know him better. And uh, I think Thomas thought the same thing. And so we started this friendship. And then over the years, it, uh, I had talked about a book I wanted to write called Novel Marketing. And Thomas started talking about that with me. He had all these ideas. And Thomas goes, Jim, it's more than a book. Come on, buddy. It could be a podcast. And and so here it is. The book still isn't written, but the podcast has uh, gone for 100 episodes. <laughs> That's right. So um, the, another thing we did, we joined the same mastermind group. And if you're not in a, a small group of committed authors, uh, I really recommend it because it's, very, it's been very life-giving uh, for us. Uh, I know I get a lot from this group and, you know, the encouragement and the challenge of having uh, a group of other authors who are walking through this journey. It's, there's nothing like it. Oh, there is. It's huge. It's huge. Hey, uh, before we move on to our next, next question, Thomas, I think Ben is listening to us uh, or watching us or both. Correct? Yeah. We, yeah. So for those of you listening live, we uh, thank you for tuning in. We're ready to do our first giveaway. We're going to be doing more during the bonus content. So for those of you tuning in live, stay tuned after we do our closing. We'll have a special time for you if you have any questions you want to ask privately that don't go on the recording. But uh, yeah, Ben gets a free copy of my book table pro. Uh, so uh, our first giveaway. Thank you, Ben, for tuning in. Way to go, Ben. Thanks for being part of it. All right. What's our next question? So our next question comes from Brittany Fitcher, 
who is the author of the Classical Kingdoms Collection. And she has her website at BrittanyFitcherFiction.com. And she says, I write clean fairy tale retellings for older teens and adults. I've just put out my fourth book, and this is selling reasonably well. I'm about to repackage my first books as a boxed set trilogy, and I've heard that readers of box sets are slightly different demographically than readers who purchase one book at a time. How can I find those box set readers? So box set readers are looking for a deal, and uh, so they're very price conscious. So they're, in some ways, they're the worst kind of reader because they're wanting to pay the very minimum amount that they can. So that's one way to look at them. The other way to look at them, though, is that they're people who read lots and lots of books. And the reason they're price conscious is probably because they're reading 100 bucks or 50 books or more, 100 books or more per year. Some people read 300 books a year. They read a book every night. They can read that fast. And when you're reading that fast, you don't want to spend $10 for a book because that's just an incredible amount of money. It's $70 every week if you're reading one book a night. And so that kind of person is the kind of person who's going to be recommending your book to other people. So you don't right. want to rule them out. And I would say one place that that person hangs out a lot is on Goodreads. Because when you're reading that many books, you are just voraciously hungry for new book recommendations. And <laughs> Goodreads is the best place for finding those kinds of book recommendations. And then I'd also say any sort of email uh, listserv that um, promotes bo um, box sets. So there's different email groups like BookBub that are focused for box sets, I believe. And um, you just would search the ones on your genre and um, go and interact with authors, <laughs> find the people talking about you on social, or I'm sorry, readers, find the people on social media and uh, ask them where they hang out. F find out where your current readers hang out online and then you want to go there because there's no one other than Goodreads, there's no one place that all the readers hang out. Different groups hang out in different places online. And so you want to find the, the group for your particular, um, you know, genre. That's so good. That's so good. Thomas, our next question comes from Jamie Jo Wright. And Jamie is publishing her debut novel this December called The House on Foster Hill. It's from Bethany. And I'm sure you wouldn't, <laughs> she wouldn't mind people going out and pre-ordering the book. I've heard great things about it. Um, and you can find out more about Jamie at jamiejowright.com. And I have to make a quick comment about Jamie. Um, she and I have been friends for a long time, and she was actually a consultant on my second novel, Book of Days. My protagonist was an expert rock climber. I just thought it would be fun. I've been fascinated with rock climbing for a long time, and I thought it would be fun to have a rock climber in my story. So I made him this expert rock climber. The only problem is I don't know what an expert rock does or doesn't do. And so I said, Jamie, will you consult me and tell me where I'm wrong and right on my scenes? And after she got done laughing at me, she told me how to write those scenes correctly and just did an amazing, amazing job as a consultant for that book. So Jamie says, her question is, you know, there's a lot of authors like herself who cut their teeth on novellas. It's a great way to break in. And she's been part of two novellas at this point in time. And those novellas have done extremely well. One of them was a publisher's weekly bestseller, ECPA bestseller. And so since she does not have her single title out yet and just has these novellas out, she's kind of become known as you're the queen of, you're the queen of novellas. And she says that's kind of funny because really two novellas make a crown. But she's worried that she's getting kind of stereotyped already for doing novellas. And yet at the same time, the momentum of that and the 
uh, publicity that's come with that, how can she use that now to launch her independent novel, her first novel that's a, a standalone title? Does she just write it and hope the readers stick with her for the long haul? Um, what specific things can she do now? Yeah, Jamie, just because a handful of folks see you as the novella or the queen, or maybe quite a few folks, the mm -hmm. world is much bigger than that. And uh, I've been hosting a radio show these last several weeks. And one of the talk stations had their host quit all of a sudden. And so I'm subbing in for an indefinite amount of time. And so I've been learning all about radio as I have this live show. And one of the things that we talk about is that there's a certain we have certain listeners who listen for the entirety of the two hour show. It's an afternoon drive time show, but most people are just tuning in for 15 minutes or five minutes. And those are the people we really want to talk to. So we have to introduce ourselves all the time because most people don't, you know, aren't familiar with the station name and or they don't know what they're flipping through. And you want to focus on the folks who don't know you as well. And so for you, Jamie, there are millions of people who have no idea who you are yet. And so don't let the few folks who do know who you are put you in a box because there's a bigger box that you can thrive in. And there's a lot of people who are going to want to read those full length books. And I will say that the universe of novel readers is much larger than the universe of novella readers. A lot of people don't read novellas. That's a very kind of a subset. And most people who read novellas also read novels. And so I wouldn't worry about that novel. I would go ahead and write it. And um, I would recommend our five-year course. <laughs> to, if you're having trouble with like how to get from here to there, you can probably well, skip Jamie, the first Jamie year actually, or so. So Jamie actually has written the novel. Bethany bought it. It's coming out December 5th. So it's it's done. So Jamie, oh. you're actually, yeah, you're actually in a great spot because those novella readers will come with you. And it's like, Oh my gosh, I liked her in part of this novella. I'm going to now go to her full length. So you're actually in a great position. You're not going to hurt yourself with those who know you as a novella reader. No, you will gain those. And like Thomas said, you're going to gain a lot more readers who are new and don't even realize that you did a novella. So you're not in a bad spot. Yes, and for those of you who are ask, um, watching live, remember, the ask a question, you can use that for asking questions or making comments. If you want to make any comments or snide remarks, we might incorporate them into <laughs> the live show. Hopefully, hopefully it's nice, but uh, you can say whatever you want. All right, our next question comes from Roland Denzel, uh, and you can find Roland at eatwellmovewell.com. In his book, Eat Well, Move Well, Live Well, 52 Ways to Feel Better in a Week, he says, when's the novel marketing book or course coming? So uh, we do have uh, the five-year course and the price on that is going up tonight at midnight. So those of you tuning in live, this is your last chance to get it before the price goes up. Uh, and a good illustration of why that price is going up is the story we shared last episode um, about how people were thinking that we were charging $24.99 a month when really it was $24.99 a year for, or sorry, one time for a five-year course. And so we realized this is priced wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> the price is going up to $49.99, which is still, which is still a, pretty a decent. great deal. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's, it is, uh, the price is going up. And, and so, but we've given you all lots of notice. <laughs> we've been warning the price is going up for several months now. So for those of you who listen uh, actively, hopefully you've gotten your chance. And we are working on another course that we're not allowed to talk about yet. But uh, and we are in talks about a book. So if you're interested in, in the book, let us know. Uh, we might put that higher to the priority list. Uh, book is a big commitment. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to have to pull Jim away from his publisher who's got him chained to his <laughs> keyboard, cranking books all the time. So Roland does ask a second question. He says, how should someone work with a small press 
who really doesn't know what they're doing. My small press keeps telling me that's not how it works. And I just want to laugh, but I don't. <laughs> I love that. I want to laugh, but I don't. So working with a small press, there's advantages and disadvantages. And if you are the wealthier, more savvy person, you may not want to work with a small press because some small presses is just another author who bought a website and says, I'm a press now. And they don't really bring anything to the table. They're just going to create space just like you would. And they're printing the books on demand just like you could. And they're taking a piece of the pie without adding any value. Um, and if that's the case, and if you've been listening to this show and you're going through the five-year course and you're reading the books we're recommending, and you know you may not need that. You may be able to do it all on your own and you get the whole pie for yourself. Um, where a small press can be helpful is one, if you don't have the savvy or you don't want to spend the time to deal with the publishing process and typesetting and all of that, and you don't want to hire the people yourself uh, to do that. Um, but uh, if they're blocking your marketing efforts, and again, we don't know from this question what it is they're telling you you can't do, um, then you probably need to find another uh, publisher. If they're saying that you know this isn't how printing works and the books have to be a certain way, that may be just the limitations of paper. Uh, so. Uh, small presses can work when they work best. It's when the press itself means something. Like Enclave Publishing was a small press, but they were well-known in the market of Christian science fiction and fantasy. The press itself had a fan base, and it really meant something to be published with Enclave. Uh, so those are the kinds of small presses I, I recommend people go with. Yeah, we've talked about this before with regard to editors, with regard to agents, and it certainly applies to small publishing houses. And that is, there's some great small publishing houses that will take you on and do a really solid job for you. But there's probably more that are a little unscrupulous. Like Thomas says, they're just throwing enough spaghetti against the wall that some of it's gonna stick, and one of the novels is gonna do well and it's gonna make them some money. You have to go into this saying, publisher is my partner, and I would not get married to just anybody, right? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't make your lifelong partner just somebody you meet off the street. Same thing with small publishers. Do due diligence. Interview authors who have worked with them. Look at the books that have come out. Go into the bookstore or even spend the money to order a couple of books and go, how is the typesetting? Or what are they doing wrong and what are they doing right? Take the time to investigate it. And I'll say about small presses, what I've said about big presses and with self-publishing companies. Don't work with a company until you have been able to find a happy customer of that company. If you can't find a single author who will say a single good thing about that company and you can't find any names of any of the authors they've worked with in the past, run away. <laughs> so you want to, on your own, be able to find an author and you just reach out to them on social media and say, hey, are you happy with small press? And, and see what they tell you. And the ones who are happy will be very quick to say that they're happy. And the ones who are not happy will ghost on you. <laughs> so uh, wait until you can find that happy customer. It's so important in this industry because um, you can get really taken advantage of if you're not careful. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Let's, uh, let's hit one more question, Thomas. And that is, uh, the question is, on another author's podcast that I subscribed to until yesterday, the host and guest bashed self-publishing. The host said self-published books are commonly not edited nearly enough, which makes them a complete waste of time to read, even if the idea is good. The guest was even harsher and said that no one ever reads self-published books because they are not marketed by major publishing houses. Therefore, no one even knows about them. I'm not published at all, but as far as I understand, publishing houses are just that, publishers, not marketing firms. They may do some marketing for the author, but don't authors end up doing most of their own marketing anyway? 
And if so, that's the case, keep going. Thomas, you want to jump in on this first part? Yeah, okay. So if you're in fiction, and this is the novel marketing podcast, almost all novels that are purchased are from the very top 10 authors. And those top 10 authors get a lot of marketing support. Publishing houses, if you're not in those top 10, they're just gambling on you, hoping that you'll be the next top 10. Because if you can get a new top 10 author, you're basically printing money. And so if you're in the bottom 1 million, you're doing your own marketing. So yes, if you're a top 10 author or even a top 100 author total, your publisher is going to do some things for you. But in each publishing house, if you're not one of those top two or three authors and you're in the bottom, you're doing it yourself. Uh, what the publisher is providing is capital and credibility. You are still responsible for seeing that those books actually move off the shelves. Uh, let me address the, the comment about the host saying self-published books are commonly not edited nearly enough, which makes them a waste of time to read. And the comment about the guest um, you know, bashing self-publishing in general. It, it almost sounds like this was 10 years ago when that would have been absolutely true. Um, I was not a big believer in self-publishing 10 years ago. But then 20 years ago, I, I would probably say indie music publishing, you, you're gonna try out, do an album on your own, that's crazy. It has come a long, long ways since, since then. And yes, most self-published books are not edited well enough because the person is not willing to pay the money to have a top-notch professional editor. And, and you can find editors that are not expensive. And we've talked about this in other podcasts. That's where you need to invest your money in a good editor. I just finished my latest manuscript. And when I say just finished, I turned it in two weeks ago. And I said to my editor, oh my gosh, this book, you, you took it so far above what I could do on my own. That's what a good editor can do for you. So I would agree that most self-published books are not edited well enough, but that's not to say there are some fantastically edited there. So, so I yeah, believe in publishing. I actually will disagree with Jim a little bit on this, and it's on based on how you count. So if you count the number of titles, then yeah, Jim's probably accurate about self-published books not being edited well enough. But if you count the self-published books that sell, the ones that are edited, almost all of the self-published books that people read are edited very well. <laughs> so people don't see the ones that aren't edited well because those aren't the ones people are reading because people recommend books that they enjoy and that are well edited. And there's nothing, like Jim said, nothing keeping you from having your book well edited. You just have to be willing to spend the money. And you need to have the multiple editors. You have to have the developmental editor who's different from your copy editor, who's different from your proofreader. And the most common yep. mistake, and we have a whole episode on this, uh, is where they just go with the proofreader or maybe the copy editor and they ask them to also do the proofing when really you need at least three separate editors to be editing three different pieces. And there's nothing keeping you from doing that. And if the money is an issue, and I'll say I wanted to do it right when I self-published my book and money was an issue, I put it on Kickstarter and the readers of my blog raised $10,000 and I was able to hire professional editors and all three of those categories that were the, you know, when they were done with my book, they would go on to their next traditionally published book. And so you can hire the same people and have the same quality. You just have to be willing to put up that money or be able to convince your readers, your future readers to put up that money for you. And again, we have episodes on all this. So if you haven't seen these episodes, go to novelmarketing.com. These are all free. <laughs> you can go and listen to our past episodes, uh, which may not always be available. We have th thought about limiting the number of episodes people can listen to to just the last 10, which is a common thing that podcasts do. We're not sure if we're going to do that or not, but right now all 100 episodes are totally listenable and bingeable. We encourage you to binge. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, some people really enjoy it. 
Very bingeable. Yes. But indie publishing, oh my gosh, you can make you can make a lot of money these days indie publishing. We have friends who are hybrids that they have done traditional uh, publishing novels and now they're doing indie as well and they are making often more money on the indie but they do spend the money on cover design they do spend money on the editors so that's the second part of the question is if that's the case if you can actually make more money why would anybody traditionally publish in other words if I'm getting a buck a book when it's selling it in Amazon for 15 bucks why would I not do all my books indie publishing yeah, well, and he says, when I have to market myself and making triple or more per book using my book table, shameless plug, thank you. For the plug. <laughs> we always like it when people talk about our sponsors and, and their questions and still keep the rights to it. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, the reality is, is that we have friends who are self-published authors who are making a lot of money and they're doing very well. Uh, a lot of self-published authors are not making good money and a lot of it comes down to you. And if you have the money, if you have the you know wherewithal to pay for those professionals. So if you have not had financial success up to this point, publishing, self-publishing isn't likely to be your first financial success. The people who are successful in self-publishing, and no one really talks about this, this, but it's people who've already been successful somewhere else. And they're taking the money that they made being a successful you know, executive somewhere, or they've saved their money very diligently, and then they spend that money on self-publishing, and they're able to surround themselves with professionals, and they are able to make their, more, uh, their money. The only version of this people will say is, how do you make a uh, large, uh, small fortune in publishing? You start with a large fortune, and it's the there is a sense that it's kind of a wealthy person's game. And if that's not for you, if you're really struggling to put food on the table and you're looking at the electric bills and you're like, I don't know, we're going to turn up the AC, traditional publishing is probably the better path because what that per traditional publishing house provides is that capital. They pay for everything. And so while they take a big piece of the pie and only give you a small piece, they take 100% of the expenses of publishing and editing and covers, et cetera. And so there's a real advantage to the money they spend. And having worked in traditional publishing, it's very expensive. And traditional publishers, believe it or not, lose money on about half the books that they publish because of how expensive it is. And so- Well, and it's, it's, <clears throat> it's actually more than half of the books they, they lose money on. It is, it is a tough game. Essentially, a publisher is, um, they do small business loans. So they loan you the money to open this restaurant but you don't have to pay it back if the restaurant fails. Most restaurants fail when they loan that money. The advance is the loan and then you pay it back through royalties. Well, most books do not earn out, so they do not give all the money back to the publisher. So that's the big risk they are taking on your behalf. And you might be the type of person that says, I, I just don't have that entrepreneurial mindset. I want someone else to do that for me. That's the reason to go traditional. Now, part of the, some of you are probably saying right now, well, that's great, Jim, if you can get a traditional publisher, but do you know how hard it is to get a traditional publisher? And I can say, yes, I do, because I know what I went through to get a traditional publisher. In that case, what do I do? Yeah, so- In that case, do not, do not go to some of these small publishers like Zulon Press or Reader's Digest. I was just curious the other day, because Reader's Digest, I got this email, hey, make your dream come true. Publish your book with us, we'll publish you. And I got the prices on it, and I was just astounded, $15,000, $20,000 to do my book. And you don't have to do that. You can find a way to do it for much, much, much cheaper, even if you're not an entrepreneurial mindset. 
And we're planning to do a series on self-publishing actually very soon. It's We've been planning out next series for this podcast, and this is not a course or pay or anything. It's going to be totally free. We're going to walk you through my process of, of self-publishing my book. And I didn't go the Zulon path. And those companies, there's actually, there's just one, believe it or not. So Zulon, Writer's Digest, Annex Libris, those are all the same company. Yeah. Hydra called Author Solutions, and they have a terrible reputation in the industry. They are not a well-loved, well-respected. And so normally I'm not explaining like all the different heads of Author Solutions because it's it takes too long to explain them all. And that's why I say just find a happy customer because you will not find a happy customer of <laughs> Author Solutions. I think all five of them are listed on their website. And if you're doing your own hunting, you're going to really struggle to find a happy Author Solutions customer. Although, and if you're looking for a happy CreateSpace customer, I'm it. So CreateSpace, Amazon's product. I did my book through CreateSpace. I'm very happy with uh, with what I got and with what I paid for. I had to do several things on my own. I hired the professionals for those things, and I was very happy with the results. And with what they charged, it was very reasonable. I did not feel like I was taken advantage of, and the interface is easy. I can order books. Anyway, I'm, I'm happy with CreateSpace. So they didn't make my dreams come true in the sense of, like, they did all the work, right? These ones were $20,000. Like, they promise you the world, and then in the fine print, they're like, but actually, we're not going to give you hardly anything. So uh, <laughs> also another rule of thumb, the more a, uh, a self-publishing company has to pay to market and advertise, the less money that you spend is actually going towards your book. Um, because with Zulon and these others, you know, you spend $20,000 on, let's say on the printing package of 10,000, maybe 2,000 of that was spent on acquiring you as a customer to pay for all of the marketing and the salespeople to talk to you on the phone. And none of that adds value. It's CreateSpace, they don't do any marketing. <laughs> so they're just, they're just owned by Amazon and they're a more honest company. So like Thomas says, we will get into a lot more detail on this and help you out down that path. But unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time. We want to wrap this up. Um, you've been listening to James L. Rubart and Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast 100th episode. And I guess before we close, I just want to say thanks so much for listening because we love doing this. Thomas and I have a blast doing this. But if it wasn't for you guys, there'd be no point. <laughs> We'd probably shut the thing down and just have conversations on the phone. So thank you so much for your encouragement, your emails, your questions, uh, your reviews, all of that. It, it means the world to us. Yes, thank you so much uh, for listening. And here's to the next 100 episodes. <laughs> we'll see you all in a bit. <laughs>